One reason to travel is to connect to our ancient roots. People make pilgrimages to places and cultures from where they originated. For me, that's Europe, the Middle East, and the Fertile Crescent. Traveling there and wandering among the the rubble of ancient civilizations, you can imagine those early societies. It's thrilling if you can put that rubble together and resurrect those stones. But it's not all must-see stuff. B.C. does not mean must-be-seen. I'm joined today by two guides who live in the Mediterranean world and are going to talk with us about antiquities and archaeology. Colin Clement, who lives in Alexandria in Egypt, and Anastasia Gaetanou, who lives in Thessaloniki in northern Greece. Anastasia and Colin, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. When you think about going to an ancient site and giving it meaning, how does an American who lives in a town that might be 100 years old go to some pile of rubble and adequately understand it, Anastasia? Well, it's not always easy. A very important thing is um, trying to understand what this meant when it was built. Because today we have this tendency of going into the archaeological site, seeing the stones that are lying all around, and after the third site, maybe, or after the second, the most common thing that we hear is, well, (laughs) another pile of ruins. And it's not exactly that. There's a lot of history behind it. And that history does not has to do just with uh, historical events, but it has to do with uh, social development, has to do with um, architecture, has to do with everything that is important in every society. And we have to understand that as we're living today, people used to live at that time. So try to connect that with those periods. Try to connect it with other countries. Try to connect with whatever you have seen and with the way you're living today. And then you'll understand that these stones are a lot more meaningful than you think. And try to to imagine it in your mind of how it used to be. Try to imagine these these stones one on the other. That's the challenge. It's not just the corner of a building. People lived there 3,000 years ago or something like this. Colin, what's a trick that you've used uh, uh, effectively to help Americans resurrect that rubble? You have to make it somehow meaningful and relevant, as I think Anastasia was pointing out, that, that, that people lived in it. People actually lived and worked and worshipped. And the people who did that were the same as us. There's a, sometimes a tendency to think that archaeology or antiquities were the dim and distant past, you know, before time, and we all thought differently. Well, we didn't. We're exactly the same species with the same mental capabilities and with the same stresses and strains and worries. And their expression of their life can be seen in the stones you're looking at. So you can be in the middle of the forum in Athens and talk about history's first hippie, Diogenes. Absolutely, yes. I mean, you talk about the people who inhabited the stones. So how do you make not the how do you make Diogenes real? He's sitting there living in a discarded bathtub or something like this, right? He's an anti-materialist. That's the romantic sort of simplistic uh, tour guide stuff. But how would you bring people back to what is the spirit of Diogenes? <laughs> I saw a kid undressed and sit in the bathtub in the forum. And <laughs> I mean, isn't it the story? The he had, all he had was a bowl that he collected handouts in, and he was this inspirational philosopher. There is this great incident with Alexander the Great when he went there and he saw Diogenes, who was living actually in a big barrel, not in a bathtub. But anyway, he was standing in front of him, and he told him that he was the most great philosopher and that he admired him, and he could have from him whatever he wanted, whatever you ask. And what he asked was, just step a bit aside, because you're hiding the sun. Do you buy that, Colin? Yes. That actually happened? or it's the It doesn't matter whether it happened or not. It's the, it's the spirit and the philosophy that is being expressed by these stories. Which and is there's important. a grain of truth there, and that makes yeah. it worthwhile. Yeah. Now, as tour guides, we hear a lot of information about these ancient sites, and, and we don't really always know what's true and what's not. And you have to sort through all of that. Uh, I know for travelers, a lot of times we try to understand appreciation of Greek architecture. you got Doric, Ionic, and Corinthian orders of the architecture, and everybody looks at the capital of the column to understand that. 
And I remember once I was on a tour and somebody told me the columns get skinnier and taller as they evolve. And Doric is eight times as tall as its base width. Ionic is 10 times as tall as its base width. And Corinthian is 11 times as tall as its base width. So I thought, that's interesting, but I don't know if it's true. So I asked another guide. I gave him that story. And I said, do you know if that's true? And he said, I don't know. And then about half hour later on the tour, he said, now, if you notice this column here, it's eight times as tall as its base width. He just took what I told My him. My response to that would be, who cares? Who cares? That's exactly. not what matters. It's like, why were the, who built these things? And what was their function at the time? And what did they express? If you want to look at the difference between Doric and Corinthian, you simply need to go to Athens and you look at the Parthenon, which is Doric, and then you go down the hill and you look at the Temple of Olympian Zeus, which is Corinthian. I like that. And think, that. who built which, when, and why? And, and then all of, the, all of the architectural details is who cares. Let's humanize it. Yeah. So for me, that is the ongoing challenge, is being able to resurrect that rubble and to put it into terms that people can understand. A lot of times... It's also complicated by the fact that this has been picked clean over the last 2,000 years. Entire medieval ages, there was no sense for history, was there? It was just these buildings were seen as quarries where you've got pre-cut stones people could cart away. I don't look at it this way, not really. Uh, definitely, they did not have the same significance for those people in the Middle Ages, let's say, as they do for us. But um, I think that they kept on living like this because they were used and used and used again. And you see a great temple of the antiquity that was used as a church later on. It was used as a palace by the Franks later on. It became a mosque later on. And it's still standing there, even if it's half ruined. But it's still standing there. And you can see all that history on that building. And I find it fascinating, actually. And that is also many times the reason why they're still standing. Because they were used. Because they were, yeah, because they were, they were socially yeah, because useful. They were used. The ones that weren't, that were used as a quarry, had, it had been decided they were not socially useful. So that's why the Pantheon in Rome, for instance, survived so well, because it went directly almost from being a temple to all the gods, Pantheon, to a Christian church dedicated to the martyrs. It didn't have that interim period exactly. where nobody cared about it and it could be cannibalized. This sort of almost unthinking reverence for things that are antique is very, very recent. Just because it's old, is it actually significant or, or interesting? That's a modern thing, huh? Yes, I think it's very much a modern thing. And I've never heard anybody actually question that. So yeah. you're thinking maybe, well, why, why does it matter? It's well, just well, old. Why, just because it is old. And, in, and to say that the ancients, or in the medieval times, they had no appreciation for things that were old, that's simply, that's not true. Maybe they had less appreciation for the building, unless the building had social utility for the moment. They certainly had a great appreciation of the knowledge and the thought that had oh, gone yeah. in the past. And ultimately, that's probably more useful than some clunking great Doric temple. Now, thinking of an appreciation of some clunking Doric great temple, it was only in the early modern times that European archaeologists would go to these ancient places and bring those treasures back to their capitals in Berlin or London or Vienna. 19th century, maybe. 19th century. It started in the 19th century, end of the 18th. Of course, yeah. there were people even before that, and they were already in the 13th, 14th century. But the first of those who were called also the amateurs of uh, classical art, they were interested more in treasures. They would excavate, but they would do it in a very fast and, well, not that careful way. And they were interested in finding the gold, the, the jewelry, and that's what they took. And a lot of it is lost forever. We don't know what happened. But in the 19th century, there was this trend of rediscovering antiquity and the classical times, which were the 5th century BC. And suddenly we see that in this time period, uh, they started documenting their excavation. They started really trying to find information about this, this era that was gone so long ago. And they're trying to rebuild that world. 
And that is actually where modern archaeology starts. Colin, now you live in Alexandria in Egypt. I think the most beautiful thing from Egypt, ancient Egypt, I've ever seen is in Berlin. Nefertiti. And the head of Nefertiti, yeah. The bust right. of Nefertiti. Absolutely, beautiful yeah. statue. How did Nefertiti get to Germany? Because in the early years of archaeology in Egypt, it was foreign nations, it was foreign European nations that were actually interested in it, sending over their, their you know, scientists, in inverted commas, who, as Anastasia said, would... Sometimes they were more or less interested in discovering things in context. Other times they were they were they were collecting stuff to be exhibited in museums. It was art history rather than history history. Oh, okay, it was and a it, German. It was a Swiss German who discovered that. And given the conditions of archaeology in the time, the inventors, the discoverers of any particular archaeological site, had the right to take a certain number of um, artifacts with them. Oh, is that the deal? So they yeah. let these German diggers in mm-hmm. on condition, and they would dig and dig and dig and, and reveal this ancient stuff because they had the wherewithal to do it. And the Egyptian authority says, you can take so many pieces so a, a back third, home For you. example, a third of your finds you can repatriate for your own museum, oh, and okay. the two-thirds will stay here as, as, as And consequently, the best stuff treasure. went out of Egypt. In as often cases. as not. I mean, it just very, very recently, the Egyptian antiquities authorities were making a noise, as they do periodically in the paper, about getting back that particular head. Zahi Hawass. Yes, yes, yes. All right. Interesting. And this, of course, leads us to thinking about the Elgin Marbles. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've got somebody from Greece here. And, of course, uh, one of the great attractions in London are the the, the beautiful carvings, uh, stone carvings from the Parthenon, which stood uh, on the Acropolis in Athens. And they end up in London, the British Museum. Uh, London has long said, well, you guys don't have a decent place to put them or whatever. And Hmm. uh, now Greece is... uh, built a wonderful new museum. And I understand there's actually at the base of the Acropolis in yes. Athens, and there's actually a beautiful room that's empty right now waiting. It's designed well, for it's the Elgin Marble. It's no? not empty because, um, well, Lord Elgin managed somehow, I won't get into details now, to get all of those marbles to Britain. And um, the government took them from him because he owed them a lot of money. So he had to pay them somehow. And that's how the government got them. They got into the British Museum. That's really, that's how it is. Anyway, uh, they got into the British Museum, and in the beginning they said that they would keep them as long as Greece could not afford to have them. Of course, you know how it is. Could not afford to have them, meaning uh, buy them or house meaning them well? not buy them, but house them well and protect them. But um, anyway, of course, uh, when something stays so long in a country and it is one of the main attractions, then you usually don't want to give it back, which is quite logical, I think. But we do want to get it back or to have it back. I don't know if we ever will. But that's what we want. We call them the Parthenon marbles. We don't like to call them the Elgin marbles, you know, because I'm Greek, I have to say that. But uh, now it is true that we have a wonderful museum, a new museum, that is based at the foothills of the Acropolis. And the last floor of it is aligned to the Parthenon. You can see the Parthenon from it. It's a complete alignment, and it has exactly the exact size of the Parthenon, deliberately, because it is the room of the frieze of the Parthenon, the Parthenon, which was the main temple of the Acropolis, had two friezes all around, and the greater part of them is in London, but a part of them is in Athens. So that is exhibited there, and whatever is missing is as a copy there in a slight different color so that you know that that is a copy to see. So you get to see the whole two friezes of the Parthenon looking simultaneously at the frieze and at the building itself. And I find it very important, and that does not have to do only with the Parthenon marbles. It has to do with every antiquity and with every monument in this world. I think it is important to have the architectural parts of the monument there where the monument is and there where they originally stood, because only then you can understand really the connection and you can understand how it looked like and what it meant for the people. It's interesting that you say that, Anastasia, because when I travel around Greece at every wonderful site, 
there's generally a wonderful museum. It might be a small museum, but it's a very thoughtful museum that helps you look at the treasures that can't be outside in the acidic air exactly. and understand the context. And then you walk through that ruined site, and it has much more meaning. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Colin Clement and Anastasia Gaetanu about antiquities. And our phone number is 877-333-RICK. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. And Norman in Ottawa, Ontario is calling. Norman, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. How are you doing? Doing well. You have a thought on archaeology or antiquities? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I mean, I've, I've been lucky enough to see a lot of uh, the antiquities in place in, in some of the classic areas of the world, but it, it surprises me um, a bit about Spain. I mean, in Spain you can see everything from cave paintings that are tens of thousands of years old all the way up through Rome and into the more modern era, and yet there doesn't seem to be any organized archaeological tourism in that country. Have you guys ever run across that? You know, Spain has had a problem with leaving stuff in the wild and people vandalizing it and two-bit thieves stealing it. This isn't ancient, but it's quite old. It's Romanesque treasures from humble little churches and villages up in the Pyrenees Mountains. And it was catastrophic how many of them were just vanishing as two-bit thieves would take them and sell them on the private market until Barcelona finally made this wonderful Catalonian art museum that now protects all of those Romanesque treasures. Sounds like maybe they're just uh, behind the times or trying to catch up on, on the preservation of their antiquities. I guess that's their first goal, I guess. Well, I think it's an expensive struggle all over Europe. To, I mean, you're saddled with the patrimony of Western civilization. Italians often complain about this, you know. It's expensive to have Pompeii. It's expensive to have the Colosseum. And uh, a lot of tourists gripe about paying 10 bucks to see it, but it's, uh, it's an ongoing uh, chore and expense to keep it up to snuff. Any thoughts on that, Colin? Absolutely. The preservation, it's, it's a huge expense in some of the countries that actually have the most. I mean, thinking of Greece, we were talking about just a minute ago. I mean, it's, Greece is a relatively poor country, which is saddled with with all these signal sites within Western archaeology, and the upkeep of them is, is very, very difficult. Sometimes it's better not to excavate, to leave things underground. I, I'm not familiar with the archaeology of, of Spain, but I wouldn't be at all surprised, as you say, given its history, that there are many, many sites out there, but they may not have been exploited, quite simply because the resources have not been found to, to pump into them. I know in Ephesus, in Iona, which is the west coast of Turkey, and 2,500 years ago was part of the Greek world, um, Ephesus... 70% of it is yet to be excavated. They know it. They just don't have the money to do it well at this point, and they're, they're happy to leave it covered up. And then in time, when they can do it properly, they will peel back the dirt and reveal the uh, remains of that ancient city. It's also worth stressing, perhaps, is that, that archaeology is a very modern discipline. Initially, it was just it was sort of looting to put things into museums. It's only within the past, say, 30, 40 years that sort of systematic and scientific approaches to stratigraphy and the application of chemistry and the involvement, indeed, not just of people who can read ancient Greek and ancient languages, but, but, but architects, stonemasons, people who have all those, what we consider to be you know, necessary skills within modern life, are, are being brought in to look at these sites. But maybe if I would give you some figures, that would help you understand a bit. I mean, I can talk about, of course, about Greece mainly. But we have officially about 2,500 archaeological sites. Of those, only about 20 are making serious money. And everything else, of course, has to be preserved as well. And if you need an X amount of money for excavation, you need three times that to preserve and maintain whatever you have found. So you can understand that we're a very small country. We just can simply not afford So when the tourist that. goes to Athens and pays what seems like a small ransom to go to the Acropolis, 
they're helping fund the preservation of all exactly. of this ancient Greek civilization that gets almost no tourism compared to the top three or four sites that everybody's going to see. If you think about it, it's 12 euros for a collective ticket, which gets you into the Acropolis and six other ancient sites. Well, that's not bad that's at all. That's a very good <laughs> that's deal. That's a deal. It's an extremely good deal. So $18 yeah, that's to the see the... most expensive ticket everywhere yeah, in yeah. Greece. No, it's a very well, good that, deal. Well, it's an unfortunate irony that the, the countries perhaps least able financially to take care of all of this are the ones that are saddled with the vast majority of the uh, ancient treasures of our civilization. Norman. Well, hopefully the people in Spain, all the authorities in Spain, will take some hints from Greece because there are so many sites that you can basically just walk up to and you think, that's really great, you're getting really close to it. But then again, as you point out, you realize this isn't going to last forever unless somebody protects it. Oh, it, it saddens me to see a Roman mosaic just scattered like a, a deck of cards that fell off the table. The other side of the coin, however, is that some of these archaeological sites which get turned into real cash cows, and I've seen that happen in certain, well, in certain countries, um, is that they, they lose all of their sense of history and their sense of awe because they're just turned into things that produce ticket money and give room for hawkers to sell junk. I mean, if you still can, in Spain, walk into sites unpestered by such thing and can get up and physical to the monuments without damaging them, obviously, then think yourself lucky. One of my favorite archaeological sites in, let's say, the Western world, I mean, it's actually in North Africa, is in Tunisia, the the city of Duga in northern Tunisia, which is protected, is looked after, it is excavated, but they've left it essentially open. And you can walk around what was a Roman town from about the second century AD, and the floor mosaics are still in place. And in springtime, the wildflowers are all out, and it's just an absolutely gorgeous sight. And you're a fan of that. That's a good thing. uh, Yes, to be able to get up close, to see it in its natural context rather than seeing it as a commodity to which people are bussed is a pleasure, I must admit. Tourism is the number one source of foreign revenue and employment uh, in a lot of these countries, Mm. so it's uh, it's an interesting dance. Mm. Norman, thanks for your call. Great. Thanks, guys. You bet. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Colin Clement and Anastasia Gaetanu about the antiquities of Europe and all of the headaches that goes along with having to host the greatest treasures of our Western civilization. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you, Rick. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks for Istanbul, Athens, and every other corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the travel store at ricksteves.com.